Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the latest edition of the All Sport 70 podcast. All Sport 70 years old, and we've taken on the challenge of picking out the greatest cars from various categories. Uh, and this episode is all about rally cars. So I'm Autosport Chief Editor Kevin Turner, and joining me is somebody who has literally written the book about some of these cars. So he's a good person to have, Nick Garson. Welcome to the Autosport 70 podcast. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. Really well, Kevin. It's- gorgeous day for it the sun is shining um, which isn't really very appropriate for rallying is it like you get rallying as being muddy and wet and only if you do it well safari would be, uh, be when you look at the, the evolution of the sport and the cars that we're all going to be talking about the ones which really will in fans minds and in terms of statistics be um familiar and the sport will be a familiar shape but they, it sort of takes us from the the early days of stage rallying um up to the present day um, because before that, it was really a very gentlemanly pursuit. Um, my wife's grandfather used to rally a bit before the war and just after. And it was very much a, a boys on tour sort of thing. Ian Fleming used to do rallies. <laughs> um, so you can imagine the kind of things that, that went on. And then suddenly stage rallying emerged out of Scandinavia. The motor manufacturers were putting together big works teams and it all got rather serious. So. My wife's gramps got out of it because he realised that he was not going to be competitive and he was more likely to hurt himself trying to keep up with these whizzy chaps that were turning up from Finland and wherever. Um, and, and it was sort of the, the, the beginning of, of the professional era as we now know it. And of course, you know, it's still the, the second most watched series that the FIA looks after. It's got a huge following around the world and, when you, and the sport still goes out and meets people. So it's, it's, it's nice to... Um, be able to have that little uh, reflection on that here. Um, and I think we've chosen to go with the um, the Mini to start yes. with as, as the but first of our dozen. We, we have. So the basic criteria, um, how successful were the cars? Did they change the game uh, in terms of sort of technological innovation or, or any other area? 
and they're now our brilliant sort of, as I call it, the get out of jail free card, which is <laughs> fever rating, which basically means we can then decide what we actually like. Exactly. So, um, slightly cheating there, but uh, yes. Yeah, so as, uh, as Nick rightly says there, the first one is the Austin Mini Cooper, which is a huge fan favourite, uh, not just in rallying, of course, but on the road and in, and in touring cars. Um, famous for its Monte Carlo rally successes, although I think it's worth pointing out perhaps that the first one was scored with a little bit of help from in terms of the regulations at the time. Where What you're talking about really is that move from effectively almost like a regularity trial type event across to... To the to the sort of sheer speed that we know now, so it was it wasn't the fastest car in that particular rally, um, although it did then obviously go on to earn its spurs in, me, in many other events. Um, so yeah, where do you stand on the on, on the mini then, Nick? Well, I mean, the mini, I suppose for me is um, the car that really got things moving for my biggest hero in the sport, who's Stuart Turner, because there was a man that was you know a navigator and a journalist and um, had his head together when it came to marketing and promotion and so on and really was committed to win and it was his ethos that he brought when he replaced Marcus Chambers at the head of the team at BMC um, which really I think made all that um, tweaking of the cars to fit the available regs for each event um, a possibility and obviously he had some great engineers at BMC and he brought in some great drivers particularly the Finns but he had Paddy Hubkirk there already and he really made that car a success almost against BMC's wishes because um, the Mini was a tricky little car for them in that it was designed, obviously a brilliant piece of work by Isagonis, to meet a fuel crisis which had sort of been and gone. And they were left with this brilliant little car, which in a world where obviously bigger was better as far as the consumer was concerned, the Mini therefore wasn't that popular. And it had to be priced at a point where this tiny little car was attractive. And that meant that they were losing money on every single one that they sold. And not many people were buying them, even at that price. So it needed something. And Turner sort of got together with John Cooper, had seen the potential in the chassis. And the Mini Cooper sort of came into being. And 1962, I think, was its first um, competitive season. And it won three events, two of them driven by Pat Moss. So you've got an enormous story there of a woman driver in this minuscule little car um, winning two European Rally Championship events. And obviously we're still some time before the WRC. So that really was the, the top level. Um, and it won three events overall. It won the Tulip Rally, uh, the um, Midnight Sun Rally in Sweden and in Germany. Um, and Pat Moss won the, the Tulip and the German Rally. So it really was quite a, a strong start um you know they came pat moss was second overall in the european rally championship of that year and here it was a stunning little car but it still wasn't quite enough in terms of the performance bmc was still sort of focused on the Healy 3000 and the mgb as the cars that they wanted to promote and turner and john cooper and the engineers really had to sort of drag them round to look here is the mini it can really compete and if you give us ideally the funds, to develop, you know, all the different 970s, 998s, 1071s, and all the different engines, which then give you the different wheel sizes and the different weights and everything else that you can work with in the, in the, uh, in the period. That's what they needed. And so they eventually got a semi-green light in 63. Um, and the, the event that really sort of got things rolling for them was the Tour de France. 
when uh, 33 EJB, which would become famous um, about six months later when it won the Monte Carlo Rally, uh, did the Tour de France with uh, Paddy Hopkirk at the wheel. Paddy was mixing it with the big boys. And in those days, the Tour de France was a huge event for the French particularly. It was live on television, an awful lot of it. And they were entranced by this tiny little car going up against Ford Falcons and big Citroens and being certainly in shout of the podium and, and potentially there for a win. And that is where the romance of the Mini Cooper really began, I think, personally, because the sales started to, to go up, led by France. And Stuart Turner was then able to go back to BMC and show them success, sales spike, let's throw even more money at it and see what we can really do with it. And that's when you get to, to 64, Monte Carlo Rally, boom, legend is sealed, basically. Yes, and it was, a, it was a giant killer, wasn't it? That's why it's such a fan favourite taking on these big cars. And of course, probably worth mentioning, I guess it's one of the most famous mini rally facts is that it should have won four Monte Carlo rallies on the trot. But it was, uh, well, it was not, they were nobbled in 66, weren't they? It was a pretty facetious... Uh, <laughs> Well, well, is that fair for me to say? It seems like a pretty facetious reason to be disqualified. It was about the lights, wasn't it? Well, yeah, we are speaking as Brits from a British perspective with, with our British history books, which say those rotten French people took <laughs> our win away from us. Um, and, yeah, I don't think that they were homologated with those lights, even though the, the car that won had exactly the same lights. But I think that they oh, were... What was the car that won? Remind me what that... It was the Citroen DS19. It was Citroen, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you see where I was going with that one. Um, look, I think the interesting thing about the Mini is that in other contexts, both road car and and um, when we come to it as a touring car, yeah, uh, it kind of the packaging is the groundbreaking part of it. The front wheel drive, in particular, you yeah, know, almost all touring cars now, certainly cars you buy on the road, are front wheel drive. But of course, in rallying, that's not quite the same. It was a kind of a bit of a cul-de-sac in that respect in that for a long time afterwards, what you really wanted was rear-wheel drive. And as we will come on to a little bit later, what you really want when things are loose, of course, is four-wheel drive. So in that respect, this is probably one area where the Mini doesn't actually score that highly, does it? No, I mean, it, it, uh, the cars were large and rear-wheel drive before the Mini, and the cars were larger and rear-wheel drive after the Mini. So no, it, it can't really claim that. I think where it, it really stands out is yes, it was it handled beautifully. It was the ideal package and totally possible to tailor at some cost, but tailor it to, to the needs of each event. I mean, when you look at the ones that it won, um, and and Rano Altonen won the '65 um, European Championship um, from Mackinnon, so they were first and second in the European Championship because they won. Um, Geneva, Czech Republic, Poland, Thousand Lakes, Munich, Vienna, Budapest and the RAC, as well as the Monte Carlo. So, you know, that's that's a fair old record in you know eight rallies in that season and they win six of them with that tiny little car. So but that is as much strategic planning and the, the, the prep work that was done and the way that the servicing was laid out, which was at a level totally unheard of by the sport up until that point. Mm. So I reckon, given that some of the cars that are going to come up on this list, for me, the Mini doesn't quite get through to the final on the spectacular and the game-changing front. So are you happy for us to leave the Mini there as an honourable mention, but, but not make it through to the final stages? Potentially, it's in limbo for me. It's not quite damned. It's not quite on a, on a pedestal yet. It's there um, because it did give the whole sport such a lift. 
and it did do so much um, culturally. You know, it, it really is a, a part of the 60s because of rallying. And, you know, when it won the Monte Carlo, they flew it back and it was met by the Beatles and it went on the Palladium on TV that following night. You know, it's that sort of a swinging 60s iconography. And, I, you know, people still today buy red minis with white roofs. Certainly got the style right. Um, and it's certainly not the worst average in terms of championships won out of those available or rallies. It won 22 events out of 77 starts. Well, we'll leave the mini there for the moment. And we'll move on. You mentioned that was an iconic design of the 60s. How about an iconic design of the 70s? <laughs> I would suggest stars definitely have the wow factor. So the Lancia Stratos, a car yes. built, a, a supercar built to go rallying, really. Ferrari engine. <laughs> I mean, quite outrageous. Yes. Um, sound, sounded fantastic. Does tick the, certainly ticks the, um, uh, ticks the success box again, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether it's the game changer, I think, is an interesting point because, in a way, I kind of almost see it as a Group B car before Group B was invented. But that's probably a bit of a stretch, given how many more years we had to wait for Group B. So, where do you think the Stratos uh, slots in? I think on two ways. I think you're entirely right. I think that when the original thinking that went into Group B uh, came to be, what they wanted was to create a field full of Stratoses. They wanted that look. They wanted that dynamism, and they wanted that noise because that Ferrari engine out in the forests or on a, on a, on a mountainside road echoing back towards you, it's it pretty much everything you could want from a rally car. Um, and they wanted to bring that level of spectacle across the sport. It's also an awful lot cheaper to build a competition car and make it roadworthy or make it look like a road car than it is to take a road car and make it competitive, particularly against something like a Stratos. And so that, that's something else because Lancia never had a vast amount of money and it was always sort of on the verge of things going horribly wrong financially and and it really was again much like um Stuart Turner it was the management and Cesare Fiorio and his ability to go another step further it's sort of the he was the motorsport equivalent of Johan Cruyff this was total rallying and there was no stone to be left unturned in finding that that advantage over your opposition, I think. And the, the Stratos is just the embodiment of that, because let's face it, the car didn't really exist apart from a Zarelli car. I think it's probably at this point I'd like to make an honourable mention from a similar stable, um, which is the Fiat 131 Abarth. I yep. think we're probably, it gets knocked out of this by the fact that it's not the Stratos and it's not the Ford Escort, which is kind of the ultimate three-box rear-wheel drive 70s rally car. Yep. And it's not as exotic as the, the Stratos, but... Probably worth mentioning that has been, I mean, at one stage during the 70s, it was sort of really flitting between uh, Lancia uh, and, and Fiat. I suppose the Fiat came a little bit later, really. So the Stratos won the championship in the mid-70s and the 131 came along a little bit later. But I kind of see them as, as kind of the, the other side of each, of the, each coin, really. Yeah, and that's sort of um, the slightly esoteric um, Fiat group policy as well, where they've got a car that's fairly dominant, from Lancia, but they don't sell it in their showrooms, and they then invest probably five times the budget to build the 131 into a car that can beat the Stratos. So it, it and Daniele Aldetto was brought back from Ferrari's Formula One team, having managed the 75, 76 programs with, with Lauda, um, and he was, I think, fairly traumatized from talking to him. He was fairly traumatized at the end of 76 with everything that had happened that year. And was quite glad to go back to rallying. 
um, with the Fiat. But obviously you then had this issue that you were competing against your sister company. Um, and they, they did very well to, to eventually overhaul it, but it was by no means a, an easy job. And, you know, the, the, uh, the last world championship win for the Stratos was 1981 mm. uh, on the Monty. It, it, it was competitive for that long. It was so, so far advanced. Um, so, you know, eight, eight seasons that it was running up front, three manufacturers title and a driver's world cup before the driver's world championship came in. So 87 rallies, 17 wins, not actually as strong a strike rate as the mini, um, in the course of its lifespan, but such a car and such an evocative car and ultimately it laid the groundwork for group B. So I think that really does have to be in there, particularly because it really marked out the territory that Lancia was going to remain in. Um, there are no limits that we will not push in terms of designing the car, developing the car or running them on events. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to put the Lancia through, I think, it's, uh, at this point, um, just, just on the cool factor, really. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the, the Stratos, Stratos goes through. And I rather suspect the next car on the list is an even easier through to the final on the basis of the Ford Escort. I think even we could be more specific and say it's the Mark II Escort, isn't it, really? I know the Mark I did certainly score successes, but it's the, it's the Mark II it's um, yeah, RS 1800. That's the sort of that's that's the kind of iconic rallying image of the of the 70s, isn't it? It is, and it, it was a, a superb car um, from from day one. Really, I mean, a, a, a legend has it that you know just one of the motorsport engineers saw an early Escort being driven around a test track and went, "Well, that would go some with a twin cam in it," and boom you know then the new motorsport program sort of happens like that and of course at the time in the late 60s ford was alive with motorsport it's gt40s were ongoing the dfv program was coming on stream in formula one and yeah why not they're on a winning streak why not tackle rallying too i mean obviously they had been rallying with the cortina and the escort really looked like an ideal platform and lo and behold that man stuart turner turns up again having been brought over from bmc and he does it all again and the original car in 68, 69 was, was quick and it won rallies, but it was frail. Um, and they had to redesign it, which meant having to, to change a lot of parts and create effectively a new car, which was the RS 1600. And they had to get a new engine for it, which was the, the BDA. And everyone was extremely excited about this BDA engine. Um, but it would take some time to get up to speed. So, for example, and this was sort of the, the PT Barnum element of uh, Stuart Turner came out in doing the, the London to Mexico rally with what was effectively a bored out 1600 Kent engine in what would become the world rally car. Um, and of course, it all went fabulously well. They had Jimmy Greaves driving one of the cars. They won the event overall. It was sponsored by newspapers, which was again a genius work. When you look at pictures of escorts, particularly the works cars, if they haven't got a sponsor on, they've got the name of a newspaper because Stuart Turner was calling up editors going, I can't give, I can't, I don't want any money from you, but if I put your name on the car, will you write about it? And of course they did. So it was great news. And usually the escorts were in the thick of it and, and won an awful lot. So um, that methodology, again, it's, it's this whole sort of emerging mentality of the sport, um, which certainly Turner and Fiorio really were the, were the pioneers of. Um, and 
the escort was just the tool. I mean, when you talk to Ari Vatanen, who is, you know, if he's not everyone's favourite driver, he's certainly in their top three. Um, and, you know, he just goes misty-eyed when you mention the escort. And to him, it was his paintbrush. Um, well, one of the things that's so good about the escort is it's so accessible, isn't it? So lots of privateers were able to feel like heroes in them. But the real masters, you know, like Vassanen, Roger Clark, Timo Mackinnons, people like that, were, I mean, they could take on anyone in a, in a well-prepared escort. Um, and I think Vastin has talked, as you say, a lot about how chuckable it was and you could you sort of just got to the corner and threw it sideways and that slowed you down as much as bothering to break sort of thing. So um, I, I, being devil's advocate slightly, I sort of put it to you that it's strike rate in terms of winning the Manufacturers Championship. It's, it's the Ford is pretty conspicuous by its absence. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they did a remarkable sales job, didn't they? Um, but on, based on precious little. Yes, very good at winning the RAC rally, and of course did win <laughs> events. Um, but in terms of winning the, the manufacturer's championship, it's just that single championship in 1979, although of course Fasten and then did win the, the driver's title a couple of years later. So does that count against it, do we think? I think it does. Um, and you do have to temper it with that because it was there for 14 seasons. Um, 87 rallies, because obviously there weren't as many rallies, and 17 wins in 14 years is not a massive strike rate. Um, one manufacturer's title and two drivers for, for Valdegarde and Vattenen. Um, but the impact that the car had on the sport, I think, sort of overrules that. It is that, you know, pagan man after shave, Bowie's platform boots, um, the Sweeney taking down villains. George, uh, Jack Regan was famous for riding round in a console, but when he was behind the wheel, he was in a 1.1 litre Escort. Um, it was that sort of a car. If you were going to work in an Escort, you probably felt a bit like Roger Clark. Um, and, and that whole selling of it, and, and even today now, there are probably more Escorts in competition in 2019, and hopefully in 2021, than there were in 1975, because people can't get enough of them. And it's sort of a, a badge of honour amongst WRC drivers that, once you sort of get a degree of success behind you and you get a few quid in your bank account, you don't go and buy a Porsche. You go and get a Mark II built so you can have fun at the weekends in it. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Although my one bugbear about that, because I'm, I'm a multi-make man, the British Historic Rally Championship, desperate for somebody to get quick in a Lotus Talbot Sunbeam or, or a one three one of Bath or something. Because yes. when you do the results for those, it's, it's escort, 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 escort. It's a bit like Formula Ford for rallying, but uh, that really... <laughs> I can't hold its success against it in that regard. That would be rather unfair. So I think the escort has to go through um, to, our, to our final. Um, and the next car on the list, I think in terms of game-changing status, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to score maximum maximum points, really. It's, it's the Audi Quattro. People yeah. didn't think a four-wheel drive car was going to work. I mean... It seems ridiculous that people didn't think a, a four-wheel drive car would work now, doesn't it, looking back? It does. Um, I mean, obviously, it was a, a bit of sleight of hand, as, as was famous, at the FIA or FISA meeting when the manufacturers were all there sort of putting the rubber stamp on uh, what Group B was going to be. And it was sort of any other business at the end. And Audi goes, can we just talk about this ban on four-wheel drive and can we lift it? And everyone sort of went, yeah, okay, fine. Cause they never thought it was going to work. And the Volkswagen Iltis had just done the Dakar and won it, which was the Volkswagen Jeep. 
And the manufacturers sort of assumed that Audi just wanted to run that car on the Safari and on the, you know, the Ivory Coast and leave the other events to the, to the grown-ups sort of thing. And they were like, yeah, okay, fine, do that, whatever. It's just going to be you versus Datsun, whatever. And then suddenly, um, end of 1980, on the Algarve Rally, this, well, first of all, the, the, the coupe four-wheel drive Quattro was revealed as a road car. Yeah, 1980 Geneva show, the Quattro is, is unveiled as a road car and everyone takes a gulp going, well, if that works, we could be in trouble. And then it turns up at the Algarve in, in 1980 towards the end of the season and demolishes everything as, as the course car and everyone knows they're in trouble. And then I think the first stage with they were of the Monty in 81, they were more than a minute faster than the, than the next car. Um, and that sort of set the trend. But it also set the trend for Audi sort of dropping the ball. Um, with that much of a, an advantage, they, they just came into it with too little. I mean, they had experience. They've been running Audi 80s in the World Championship as, as two-wheel drive cars. And obviously, Volkswagen had been there and thereabouts with the Golf. So they weren't completely fresh to it. But they came in with this mentality that, the technology will win and it doesn't matter anything else really. They've got Hanu Mickler as a safe pair of hands. Um, they went after Walter Roll um, as an obvious choice. And obviously he, he was on his way to winning the 1980 championship when they approached him and threw the doors open to Walter. He was born a stone's throw away from the factory and Walter looked at it and he looked at Mercedes because Mercedes was planning its big comeback and Mercedes promised him a five year program ending up with a mid engined four wheel drive, Group B car from Mercedes, and he thought, Do you know what? I think I'm going to go with them. And Audi, having sort of thrown open the gates, was extremely um, negative towards Walter in the press. And that, because he's such a old-fashioned gentleman, man of honour sort of a person, Walter took that very personally, and he made it his job in every rally that he could to completely undermine Audi. And they were also, you know doing quite a fair job of, of um, taking some time to, to establish dominance. I mean, 81, the cars did catch fire an awful lot. 82, the cars still kept catching fire. And the quicker driver was actually Michel Mouton. And the team hesitated to put its weight behind her in the same way that most teams would, particularly if they were under pressure to score results. And when you've got Ferdinand Pieck bankrolling this thing, you can imagine that there was a fair bit of pressure on them to, to, to deliver. But I can also see that also if Michel Mouton had won the 1982 championship, it would have been Michel first and Audi second. It wouldn't have been Quattro and the technology winning the championship. So they did fight shy. I mean, Michel's a, a, a consummate politician, but when you look at how they didn't put their weight behind her in the, in the crucial rallies of mid-season in 82, um, when obviously Walter Roll had been battling away with the ancient Opel Ascona. Michel had done exactly what was needed of her and Hanu had gone off the road, he'd blown up, but rally after rally after rally, Michel had won two or three and was really you know, leading the championship. And um, at that point, they put better tires on Stig Blomqvist's car than they did on Michel's. So Thousand Lakes, when she was leading the championship by the fraction, she came off, she rolled the car, the car was undamaged, just got out of it walked away where normally any other driver would would carry on to the finish and i did put that to her that perhaps um you know it, it, 
she could have benefited from more support and she said well I, I'm not going to argue with your research being a politician um, in such matters so I think that they sort of whether tactically or not messed up 82 a little bit um, but obviously that then 83 they, they got it all worked out and you put all your weight behind one driver and that driver was Mikola and everyone on the team in 83 knew Hanu was the man and Hanu was going to win the championship and they collectively as a team would win uh, the manufacturers and sadly they fell short of that because Walter Rawl was still there with his fly to stick in the ointment and it was only after he joined the team in, in 84 that they could really say that they were um, approaching dominance but by then of course Group B um, was, was moving in a different direction. So yes, it did change the game. It, it brought together turbocharging and four-wheel drive, neither of which were particularly innovative technologies, but they were together and they were in competition and they made them work, but they dropped the ball in 81 and 82. And then rather than adapt to group B as it was coming, all they did was throw more power at it and do mad stuff like take stuff out of the wheelbase of the car, which, which actually made it considerably worse. Stig Blomqvist, who I think was the ultimate quattro driver, um, has always said that his ideal quattro would have had the 20 valve engine in the long wheelbase car and made it lighter. Um, mm. And I think that stands. One or two people have actually built them since. But um, I, I think, I mean, I would certainly never disagree with uh, Blomqvist on that point, but I, I'm quite pleased that they built the, the, the 85, the winged... <laughs> monster spitting I mean it wasn't very effective at all as you say it'd been overtaken by by Peugeot um, and then of course Lancia um, but there's some brilliant footage you have I think it's Stig on the is it Thousand Lakes and every time he's coming over the over the, the crest of each he's having to break and there's steam coming out the brakes <laughs> it's really one of those it's, it's almost the epitome of a car with way too much power uh, uh, than grit really and handling um, but yes. what a fantastic thing to watch it kind of got more cool, the less effective it became, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, for um, me, I, I love the sound of the 10-valve engine. That, that early car with that real warble to it was, was just a really amazing sound and, it's, and so unique. And I, you know, I was nine, ten years old, but um, you know, when, you, when you tuned in to, to Top Gear uh, for the rally report in the evenings, uh, William Woolard, and you wanted to hear that... <laughs> going on in the background and then you've got the the, the 20 valve valkyrie screamer and and walter roll doing his bits and, and an incredible piece of machinery and an incredible work of dedication the the testing program to make that car behave that roll carried out in particular was just astounding i mean it's seven days a week for most of the season they would be pounding and pounding and pounding the stages wherever they needed to be um, and a lot of that development was done in, in South Africa, away from prying eyes, which is quite fun. Yeah. So, I, I think you're absolutely right to say it probably didn't deliver the, the champ, certainly didn't deliver the championships that it should have done. Although I wonder if that's more down to, as you say, the team rather than the car itself. Perhaps a perhaps a moot point, but um, um, I think on the basis that uh, every significant rally car, well, apart from the Citroen Zara and the the 306 F2 cars, which I thought were fantastic. But every significant rally car after that really was a was four-wheel drive. I think it probably has to go through for discussion towards the end if you're happy with that. But I'm more than more than that. happy. I mean it really was a groundbreaker in those terms. As a car, it was um 
and you know as a cool car as well it was a you know a proper 80s coupe and it, it most famous we all say to this day fire up the quattro because gene hunt has one because the actor who played him remembered seeing quattros rallying in the 80s on tv and he was like i want a quattro if we're doing the 80s i knew that good bit of trivia i like it i like there it there you go um, yeah, it was certainly better than the cool scene he had in uh, the original. <laughs> um, right, now, uh, the next one, I think we, we can only allow one of the next two through. So this okay. is a proper, what is the ultimate Group B rally car? Is yep. it Peugeot 205 Turbo 16, which of course actually did the winning in terms of the championship? Uh, or is it the Lancer Delta S4? which I, I would argue with a supercharger and a turbocharger and martini livery <laughs> probably takes it on the fever rating. So Lancia versus Peugeot, what, 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 what do you think? Hands down the Peugeot. It was such an important car because it did achieve such a staggering success rate. And, and, and you know, here was particularly Jean Todd. Here's a man that was a, a rally co-driver in 1981. In 1982, he said, he was brought in to head up the team, brought in to head up the whole division of a struggling car maker. And he stood there with a straight face and said, we're going to come out with a prototype next year. We'll do some rallies in 84 and we'll win the championship in 85. And most of the world sort of looked at him like he was about to go and lick a window. And in fact, um, that's exactly what came to pass because um, they did the job properly. And... The Lancia was sort of a reaction to that, or it was a complete reaction to that. And I think we mythologized the Lancia um, too much. Um, I think, you know, the fable about it potentially qualifying fifth for the Portuguese Grand Prix and things like that. Um, uh, Isaac Newton's got a few things to say about yeah. that. Complete nonsense, yes. <laughs> and obviously it's, it's a car that's sadly um, known as much for tragedy with, with the, the Teufenen accident. And we do tend to mythologize those sorts of cars. It's like people wearing Gilles Villeneuve t-shirts with the number 27 on when actually I'd probably wear one with a 12 on if I was, if I was wanting to wear a, a Villeneuve shirt. Yes, it, it, it sort of defined the era in how mad it got. Um, and I would suggest, and, and there are others that would agree that it didn't really kill off Group B because Group B only had a five-year lifespan and it was from 82 to 86 um and there was the, the plan was for group s to come in and group s was killed off and they decided not to renew on group b's certainly for that larger engine capacity and moved to the group a production cars um but again there's there's so much because it was such a furious time late 85 early 86 and then to the end of the 86 season and there was so much drama and it was all going on and it was so bonkers um, that we sort of get a bit too steeped in stuff. And I, I just think that the S4 gets a bit too much credit for a car that it potentially could have turned the whole sport on its head. And I think the Group S version, had that ever gone into competition, would have just blown everyone away. As it was, they already blew everyone away with a, with a Group A car and there was nothing to touch Lancia for the next four or five years anyway. So I think in terms of Group B, we have to give it to Peugeot. I have to agree with you. I think that the, the, the Lancia to me is cooler, but the Peugeot, you know, it's it won, won the championship with Timo Salonen and Juha Kankinen. Um, it was a more, probably a more complete package, wasn't it? 
Um, and if you, I guess if you compare accidents, you know, the Toivonen one was horrific. Vatanen's one was enormous in Argentina, am I right in saying? Yeah, that's and, right. And, you know, the way that, the, okay, it was a huge accident. He was pretty seriously hurt. But uh, as was, was as was Terry, but not not as badly. His co-driver Harriman was was pretty poorly. But, but you would say that the two hundred five was perhaps the perhaps the right side of mad in Group B in terms of both getting the results and 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 in construction. Perhaps that's a little bit unfair on the Lancia, but I, I, I'm I'm happy. I think to put the uh, the two hundred five Turbo sixteen uh, E two with all the wings on. Okay, we'll we'll cover them both. They're both covered off in that. I think. I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, certainly, the the Delta was a car that Toivonen developed, and and he was really the only one that got anywhere close to being comfortable in it because it was basically an 037 with a fairly crude four wheel drive in it and that mad engine, and the S4 therefore it wasn't as fully thought out and it was built on a much smaller budget than what Peugeot had thrown at the 205. So it, it was sort of really a slightly desperate measures for Lancia to stay in the game and, and try and take it further on because there was such a short development time. Whereas the Peugeot, yes, it was a very short development time. Um, I think it was six months from concept to prototype turning out. Um, but it was done very sensibly. Um, you had Des O'Dell, who'd been running the Talbot program with the, with the Sunbeam Lotus. He basically laid out the architecture for it as being user-friendly. And obviously Des went back to the 50s and, and Aston Martin at Le Mans, and he knew that front and rear subframes should be identical. So you can, if you bend one, chuck it away and just grab the first one out the back of the truck. All the nuts and bolts had to be the same size throughout the car, because if you lose one, just grab another one, chuck it on. And that sort of a thing, the, the, the depth of thought in it. Um, and yet the fuel tanks were under the seat, the same as in the S4. So, you know, had that question been asked of the car, um, it would have probably come up with a similar answer. It was still Kevlar panels, it was still rocket fuel, and the rocket fuel was positioned under the drivers. So those sorts of incidents that befell Toivonen were always more likely with a Group B car, um, given the technology of the day. But at the same time, um, the real only fundamental flaw with the 205 was its um, handling when airborne, and it would throw the tail up, and that's what Ari had the misfortune of throwing the tail up and then when the front wheels landed, they were in a hollow and the, the back end of the car just overtook the front and, and it rolled and rolled and rolled. And no, his seat broke and he was thrown about in the car. No seat was ever really in, in the mid eighties designed for those sorts of forces. So um, when you get in those cars, as you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to, and you sit there and you look at how narrow and spindly those tiny little tubes are around you and the rest of it's all fiberglass and you just realise how brave those boys and girls were in, in the Group B period. They are stunning, stunning achievements and, and pushed to the limit. And Group B as a whole deserves its reputation. And I think, although it's the sensible choice and it's maybe not the passionate choice, um, for me, the Peugeot shades it. Yeah, and I think also worth mentioning, of course, that it went on to win the Dakar Rally, which Indeed. the Lancia certainly did not do. No. So I think, um, yeah, I think the 205 Turbo 16 goes through, and we go from the sort of outrageous over-the-top uh, period of, of rallying to what initially, I think, even certainly the drivers felt was, was pretty, pretty dismal and poor, although rally stage times didn't take too long to get back to those, uh, those points. 
Um, Group A came along for 1987 and the, the Lancia Delta HF, which then became the Integrale and then the 16 valve, kind of lumping them all into one, one family. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of success, it's probably about the strongest car on this list, I would think, just for consistent winning of rallies and championships for years and years and years. Absolutely. I mean, it was nine seasons at, at, at the forefront, basically. Um, 92 rallies, 45 wins. And of course, all those six manufacturers titles and four drivers titles. So, you know, it's a, a unique car, which really Lancia was fortunate to have when other manufacturers didn't have anything that, that could compete and didn't have the experience that obviously Lancia had and, and the team had. So um, for all the right reasons, that car dominated Group A. Um, in the early years and to be honest even, even when it became under pressure and when the the Japanese onslaught of, of the World Rally Championship came it was still able to hold out primarily because of that same old grit and determination which had marked out Fiorio's style in the when he started out in the 60s and when he was with the two-wheel drive car against the Quattro um, you know throwing salt down all, all around the Monte Carlo route that sort of behavior became the norm in the late 80s, early 90s with, with the Group A cars just to keep in front. I mean, there's all sorts of stories about, you know, why were they changing the fire extinguishers at every service? I don't know. <laughs> oh, we can't. That's a whole different podcast, that is. <laughs> that's, a different, that's a different sort of list, that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think um, one of the things that's, that definitely scores for the Lancer in, in this for me is how it does hold its own when that onslaught comes. It's not that it's just enjoying success when it's a bit weak. The championship gets stronger, you know, particularly with Toyota, Carlos Sainz, the GT4 um, comes along and, and the Lancia holds its own strikes back against it uh, as well. And just from a personal point of view, I've always thought the late model, the sort of 92 car, um, with the sort of flared wheel arches, again, the Martina livery, I think that actually looks spectacular as well. By then, you're into stage times that would have surpassed the Group B cars. So they're, 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 you're quite a long way from that underwhelming original car from 87. <laughs> it was. It was a funny little boxy shape, wasn't it, when it, when it first appeared? And obviously, you're coming from the S4, which would have been just craziness on steroids, and then you go to this humble little sort of five-door runabout, um, which was based on a Fiat Ritmo, and then it, it becomes this beefy thing um, with, with uh, again, an exhaust note. I mean, that old Lampredi four-cylinder doing its job, sounding like it should be in a Maserati. It was absolutely gorgeous. The overrun on that thing, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, that's probably geeking out a little bit too much, but I can go with that. I'm quite comfortable with geeking out on the Integrale. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. A little anecdote here. Um, I did my graphics project at school on the uh, on the Integrale. Lots of drawings, but then we had to make a model at the end, and I couldn't find an Integrale model, so I did a Delta S4 model, and the teacher didn't notice. <laughs> I don't know if that's because my drawings were so terrible, where they just thought, "Oh, he's got this far. We'll let him. We'll let him carry on. Having <laughs> Odyssey." But uh, yeah, so Delta Integrale. I mean, forty-five out of ninety-two. You said that. I mean, that's an incredible strike rate. That's basically one in two. Yeah, um, some great drivers came through. Different people won championships in it. Long, long time uh, at the top of the sport. So that definitely goes through. And I think because of that, 
it, it prevents effectively the, the Toyota Celica really from from quite making it in. Definitely deserving of an honourable an honourable mention. But instead, um, if we're talking about sort of Oriental cars, I think the next one, arguably, I guess for some fans, this will be the car that introduced them to rallying. It's it's Colin McRae. It's five five five. It's Subaru Impreza. Um, I guess the one that's uh, for me, it's like it's, it's, it's double edged. This one because or you get you get a bonus because the original car was pretty cool, but then when they brought the WRC rules in for '97, I think the the slightly more outrageous version looks brilliant as well. Okay, it went a bit wrong when we got into the 21st century. Aesthetically, got much more challenged, but those first few models were fantastic to look at and very successful. Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know. I th- all credit really has to go to ProDrive as well and to David Richards, for ju- just for the, the look and feel of it. I mean, obviously Japan had been in love with rallying for decades prior to um, the Impreza. And little by little, in increments, the Japanese manufacturers had started to, to make inroads, starting in Africa. And then obviously get the European events, they started to really get a feel for those, primarily by employing specialist um, talent steeped in the sport in Europe, whether it was Ove Anderson at Toyota or, or and then ProDrive, obviously, which then brought an extra layer of finish. You know, you never see a, a ProDrive car that isn't immaculate, and that was very much the ethos of of the team. That that blue and gold, which was totally against the usual sort of white, and then a splash of whatever colour might be, unless you've got Martini as a sponsor. You know, and then white wheels. No, let's have gold wheels and let's make the car dark blue. And everyone goes, no, you'll never see it in the forest. But, oh, well, we'll put some bright yellow on it then. And then, oh, that works. And obviously you've got the boxer, which made a phenomenal noise. Um, the team was ready. You know, ProDrive had done, done well with Porsche. They'd done well with um, Jimmy McRae's 6R4. They'd done brilliantly with the BMW M3. And it made sense that you know this would be the next step, and and a partnership with Subaru would be what carried them to to world championship glory. Um, the the Impreza was stonkingly quick, first straight out of the box, Fattenham second on the Thousand Lakes. Ari's there doing his bit, and then you come into the, to the whole era of um, McRae and Science and that amazing title battle in in '95. Um, between the two of them. And I think it's quite interesting that the, the three world rally champions with the Impreza were all young guys that um, probably benefited from having that level of professionalism around them um, to get the job done. Because, I mean, okay, Richard Burns was always quite a, a measured and considerate person, whereas, you know, Petter and, and uh, Colin were flat out. Uh, uh, at everything at life and um, it needed that sort of structure and experience that, that, that the ProDrive setup gave them to get the best out of the Subaru. I think. Now I am an Impreza fan but there is one major hurdle for it to get through to the end and this will give you a bit of an indicator if you read the World Rally Champions during this period you've got Colin McRae winning it in 95 in the Impreza uh, you've got Richard Burns in 01 and then Petter, Petter Solberg in 2003. But in between, it's the Subaru's nemesis. You've got a run of Tommy Mackinnon titles with the Mitsubishi Lancer. Now, I always yeah. thought the Impreza was cooler, but Colin McRae lost probably 97 and 98. Uh, everyone always says because he crashed, but actually also 
lost quite a few points to Impreza unreliability problems. And the Lancer always, you know, I always thought if Tommy Mackinnon put the wheel of the Lancer in a ditch, it came out and, and ripped the tree to pieces. <laughs> Whereas if Colin did it with the Impreza, it would come out with only three wheels on his wagon. So yeah, the Lancer, the Impreza, I think, is cooler, but is there a case to be made for the Mitsubishi Lancer Evolution series that it was actually the better rally car? There certainly is a case to be made, certainly in that sweet spot that they found in the in the mid-90s with it. Um, I think that it's because rally art compared to ProDrive was a very sort of spit and sawdust operation. It was sort of done out of a shed compared to the, the garage mahal that, that ProDrive was working out of. And you've got so much of the focus being on presentation and DR was a big part of steering the, the regs of WRC and obviously had a long-term interest in, in the, the health of the sport. Whereas Rally Art was literally just building cars and they were Group A cars. All of those winning cars were, were Group A. Everyone was getting involved with tricky diffs and whatever else and breaking cars a lot. And they had, first of all, brilliant engineering and a, a great leader in, in Andrew Cowan, and they had Tommy Mackinnon, an engineering-led driver, who was more than up to the job of making, you know, what was an anachronism by 97, 98, a world championship-winning car. Um, and I think that um, Tommy, as a driver, has more than enough flair and more than enough results to be way up in the Hall of Fame. But he's sort of an Andy Rouse, in that he will, um, you know, engineer a car towards success. I think he was such a key part of that. And obviously that's rolled out in his post-driving career. So um, I think that the contribution he was able to make, you know, the uh, the ProDrive sort of boy band of um, McRae, Burns and Solberg, um, yes, they all had undeniable talent, but but they probably relied a bit more heavily on the engineers than Tommy did. And Tommy is that sort of a character. and And... The guys that were alongside Tommy maybe didn't make as much of an impression. Um, it was it was a small operation and it was all around him and he was very much integral to how it all went. Whereas ProDrive was a much bigger operation, much flashier, had its eye on the marketability of the car and of the sport and of the team and, and of the drivers and everything else. Whereas Rallyout just sort of turned up and did it. And, you know, to the life on Mars analogy, if, if a rally art mechanic had sort of been knocked on the head in 1996 and woke up in 1973, he'd have just gone to work as normal. I don't think he would have noticed that there was actually much different with his world. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's worth also mentioning, of course, if you look away from the very top of WRC, that the Impreza and the Lancer, Group A, Group N forms as well, were really the bedrock. And in fact, in some places still are. Yeah. Um, you look at a national rally field, there's still it's it's full of escorts with various degrees of modification and ridiculous engines in them, uh, impressors uh, and lancers. So they I think yeah. that they're both very important cars in, in, in sort of modern rallying terms. Um, okay. but I'm I'm gonna put you on the spot uh, and say I'm very happy that one of these has to go through to our final, but I'm gonna make you pick whether it's the impressor or the lancer. Okay, on um and stats can go either way and they can be proved or disproved. I'm going to have to go on a statistical basis that no car has had as long a frontline career as the Impreza. Um, that with 192 world rallies, it's got more than any other. With 46 wins, it's got more than any other, even though that's only a 20, only in inverted commas, a 24% strike rate. Um, 
I think, and the fact that most people, more people wear blue and yellow to attend a rally today than wear any of the current team colours, I think says a lot. I think it's got to be Subaru. I think on its, its impact on the sport on a broader commercial level, um, you know, because Colin McRae, uh, yeah, he wouldn't have done what he'd done without Subaru in the same way that Subaru wouldn't have done it without them. So I think that's, um, I think on this occasion, the fever does, um, does, the, <laughs> does the, the almost Teutonic level of success that the uh, Lance had in the late 90s. So, um, so the Impreza goes through and um, now we're, we're, we're moving on to a car actually did compete against both of those. Um, and it's another Peugeot. Yes. Um, and it's the Peugeot 206. Um, I think, you know, if you think that Ford were coming in with the focus, they got McRae, threw a lot of money at the WRC um, and got beaten by what, as a road car, is a pretty pretty dull-looking thing. But as a rally car, in Marcus Grunholm's hands, was a very effective weapon, wasn't it, the 206? Yes, yes. I mean, um, I quite like the little 206 road car. I, I had one recently. It was an absolute bargain. Oh, I'm very sorry. I had a oh, no, no. which I thought was cooler, but... Uh, anyway. Yeah, no, no. I mean... <laughs> it's just that that different changing world and and you're right i mean the reception to the 206 as a road car was pretty tepid because everyone was so used to the 205 blowing their minds even if it was only the base model and so yeah this was um new territory peugeot needed to jazz its image up um obviously they had been rallying throughout um with the the, the 106 and particularly the 306 maxi which was a giant killer par excellence um, so much of the team was still held over from the days of Jean Tot and the 205 T16. What happened was this sort of alchemy of, I mean, the actual engine architecture is the same. It's 205 and the 206 WRC. Um, it's, it's that same XU block, um, but obviously sort of made to do rather different things. But it was the gizmos and the gizmology and the packaging. Yeah, gizmology. Gizmology, right. But, and basically, this is what Formula One cars were like in 1992-3. Yes. And so it had traction control. It had all the tricky diffs. It had absolutely everything. And it was a car that really shouldn't have worked because it was so small. And you got Michel Nandon, who, who made the Toyota Corolla work. And Peugeot went, well, can you do it again, but smaller? And uh, we was the answer. And with throwing all these electronics at it, um, and a driver of the innate skill of, of Grunholm, you're going to get somewhere with it. And yeah, two drivers' championships in three years. Thank you very much. And it sort of defined where WRC could get to, I think. I think it was sort of the zenith of technical achievement in, in WRC. Interesting. So does it, does it have the longevity and the six? What's your strike rate stats on the 206? Strike rates are 64 rallies, 24 wins, 38%. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty and 50% of all the titles that it could have won, it won. Which, against that sort of competition um, that it was up against in, in 2000 to 2003, that's not bad going. No, absolutely. Um, no, a very good car. I, I think looking at the list of cars that we've got through to the final, I, I can't see the 206 defeating some of the cars that we have uh, that we've put through already. It would so, be an odd choice. It would. So I think that we can say fantastic car against expectation and certainly a lot better than the car that came after it. 
as Grunholm, I'm sure, would fill an entire podcast talking about. Um, <laughs> I've got a real soft spot for the 307 WRC. I think it, I don't know, I some sort of perversion. Only one. <laughs> uh, but I was to, I suppose. Um, but um, we'll move on uh, slightly across the corridor in terms of uh, French uh, rally cars. Yes. Um, and, and they're actually kind of, a Citroen has to be represented on this list for its, its successes in the 21st century intrinsically linked of course to Sebastian Loeb and his incredible record yeah uh, I had real difficulty in choosing which of the Citroens uh I should go for and I went for the Zara yeah partly because it was the first one and partly because it of course did win a championship as a privateer entry with Loeb although how privateer that was <laughs> I, 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 I'll perhaps link to a more experienced and knowledgeable rally commentators to talk about. <laughs> I think also the fact that, that Sebastian you know, fell off his bike and was missing for half a year and still came back and won the championship anyway is um, in a privateer car. That's not bad. No, absolutely. And are, we, are, we, are you happy that the Zara should be the one here rather than the C4 or even the DS3? Um, I think so because... Um, it really was the car that established it. And also it was sort of proof of the development package, I think, in that it was as much the driver as it was the car. Citroen pulled this, you know, young gymnast who had an interest in driving rally cars. And, you know, everyone knew that French drivers were amazing on asphalt, but pretty much nowhere on gravel or snow. Oh, here's the man that proved that wrong. You know, um, just, just his ability and, and the way that his, his craft was honed and supported by Citroen at every, every level from almost day one, um, I think was sort of very much like McLaren and Lewis Hamilton, is that you have the idea that developing the driver as you develop the car um, was the mentality. So, yeah, I mean, basically, the Zara, um, it made an extremely cool looking rally car for a start. It was sort of a bit like a French Capri which I like. Um, I always quite liked it. I really like the F2 version, actually, but I think that was probably a bit too, uh, yes. too far removed from, uh, yes. from talking about to be included. But yeah, I, th- I think it was a better looking car than the, the, the two Citroens that follow, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And, and all those ones that went before it, beginning with X, that Brian Brown used to advertise <laughs> on TV. Before they went rallying, they relied on the bloke that shot himself in, in cocktail to, to try and sell cars. And then they went rallying and started selling cars. There you go. So, um, and it was so different to the road car as well, because the road car was a bit of a amorphous blobby thing. And yet the rally car looked sensational. It was a better optimized package for that whole PSA um, tricky diffs and electronics and everything else that was in the 206. You could pretty much with, with a few exceptions, you know, sort of throw most of it in and refine it a bit. Um, But it was a much better size floor pan to be able to, to, handle all different surfaces than the 206 was without relying on the computers to sort everything out every nanosecond. Um, and of course you, you had Lerb who came in, um, Kuras won the first event, in comes Lerb at the beginning of 2002 particularly and sort of wins the Monty, certainly got the public vote I think that year. Um, and if it weren't for that, uh, if those perishing kids hadn't put that uh, spare tire in the back, then then he would have got a uh, Monty on, on, on his uh, WRC proper debut. Um, but he was then, you know, sort of part and parcel of the sport and could be mentioned in the same breath as a Science or a McRae or a Mackinnon 
when they were still not past their prime. Um, and I think that although we may have got um, a little bit tired of the level of domination that was to follow in the same way that people do with Schumacher and with potentially Hamilton and Mercedes as well, you know, you do start to wear out your welcome a bit. But the fact that um, the, the level of competition that the Zara had to beat and that Loeb had to contest uh, with, including in the same team as him. I mean, Science was, you know, Science is still winning now, 20 years on. Um, and, and Colin, he didn't like those cars. He didn't like all the gizmos in them and, and he was never really at ease in them. But you've still got to go some to beat Colin McRae in the same team. Mm. Um, I, I think it, 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 was, it was proof of, of the whole concept, I think, that the Citroen had. My, my reluctance in terms of putting it through comes actually almost because of that, because of Loeb's total... Uh, if you took him out, let's say you plopped him in the, in the Ford, especially the focuses that came a bit later and actually did win the Constructors' Championship in, um, in the middle of the decade, would he have racked up the same number of titles? And you kind of think he probably would have done, um, which is no disrespect to Marcus Grunholm, who I, who I do admire greatly as well. But yeah almost more than any other car on this list i think that the zara is associated with one driver yeah um, rather than it being it's the opposite to the escort which is an everyman car lots of people had them drove them at different levels right up to the world rally championship so if we were debating the greatest rally driver in the world i think that we would be spending a lot of time talking about the 2000s um but I, as a car I, i'm struggling to to put it through to our final final debate. I think we're going to struggle for modern ones, is, is, is my honest answer on that. Um, I think probably um, we need to put the... I, one of these last three needs to go through. And I'm probably more comfortable with a French car than a German one. Oh, now, well, let's go on to that then. Before we make that decision, um, because I always thought that the Volkswagen Polo was pretty cool. Right. Uh, so, not as a road. Well, actually, I think it was a good road car. It wasn't a cool road car. Yeah. Uh, I, I rather preferred the OJ Polo domination over the Loeb Citroen one. I couldn't really tell you why. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just think I thought the car looked a bit cooler, really. And I think it's a great shame that we didn't get to see the the sort of Polo on steroids that they were developing for the new era of of, of WRC. But probably. We're fortunate in a way that it didn't appear because we've had a really open, fantastic uh, fight for the championship over the last few years, where, whereas I suspect an OJ-driven polo would have continued racking up the titles and lots of rally wins. Um, and so it's been more open without them. So what's your beef with the polo? I think it's um, passion. And that emotional connection to the sport and its audience, which I just never really saw with Volkswagen. I mean, I was uh, on the Rally Deutschland in 2014 and 2015, and you would expect it to be wall to wall, brim full of very happy Germans with a German World Championship winning car. And it wasn't. It was just lots of drunk Belgian Thierry Neville fans. There was absolutely nobody because um, they're, they're like 40 miles away from home so they can come pitch the tent get the cans of Belgian lager out and they're there for the weekend and there were very very few Germans paying much attention to the rally going on and I think it sort of had that clinical nature to it um, it was a time when 
you know, Ford had rolled back as a, as a works entrant and obviously M Sport works wonders um, with Ford as a sponsor, um, but it is a privateer team. Citroen was sort of sitting on its haunches and letting Love do the, do the hard work for them. Um, and they developed the DS3, which was an, an Ogier car. Um, Ogier did the development work. It was expected that Ogier, you know, they're expecting Love to step back after the C4 era. And they, surely you can't win any more than that. And Ogier has developed this car. And then what happens? Love goes and beats Ogier. And Ogier throws his toys out the pram and goes and joins Volkswagen. And Volkswagen then has this supercar that they are developing. Um, and yeah, okay. It is that. It is a supercar. It doesn't have the same level of competition against it that the Peugeot or the Citroen had prior to that. Um, it does have the greatest of his era of drivers um, in the car, backed up obviously with the obvious and admirable talents of, of Yari Matti um, in particular. And, you know, we all followed his um, path to salvation on asphalt, particularly, you know, you, he was always so preoccupied by getting up to speed on asphalt and getting close to Ogier on asphalt. And then finally he did beat him on asphalt. I think that was probably the highlight for me of the polo campaign was, was when Gary Matty finally got that asphalt win. I'm not feeling a lot of Ogier love here. It's uh, not feeling a lot of that, but uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a, I'm very, yeah, I think that's a fair enough argument. I would just say before I let go of the polo completely is that would I be right in saying it's got the best strike rate of any car on this list? Yes, it is 100% for titles. Yes, and uh, it must be 80s or even maybe 90 for wins. 82, 51 rallies, 42 wins. 82%, that's, uh, yes. So, so statistics, if we, if we let ourselves be led by statistics, then yes, obviously, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And no manufacturer has ever done that before or since. Yeah, well, I... I think statistics are a good guide, but if mm. they were the only thing, we wouldn't be having these sorts of debates. Because you <laughs> so no, so there we there we go. From the modern era, then um, let's say the twenty first century, we'll yep. put the Citroens R WRC through to the final. Um, so at the moment, our finalists are the Lancia Stratos, the Ford Escort, the Audi Quattro, the Peugeot two hundred five Turbo sixteen, the Lancia Delta Integrale, the Subaru Impreza, and the Citroen Zara. Before we argue about those and get a final winner i just did want to mention a couple of other cars the alpine renault a110 i think is a fantastic piece of kit but i kind of thought of it as a almost a pre-stratos stratos in terms of a specialist exciting yeah. rally car um that perhaps didn't have quite the impact the austin healy of course you mentioned if you go even further back but are there any other cars that you think we should throw and we've not mentioned any saabs they're massive fever i mean saabs yeah Cool, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but are there any are there any cars that uh, you'd like to to mention before we pick a winner? I think myself, I'd always put a Celica in there. I think probably the the second generation of the ST one eight five GT four for me is just again, it's kind of a a cool coupe. It did its bit, um, and yeah, it it. it effectively brought an end to the Integrale era, I think, and, and ushered the way in for the, the full Japanese assault that was to, to, to come. So I think that, that there should be a, a Toyota in there. I, you know, people are so dedicated to particular cars that this is going to be such an interesting 
subject to see roll out because you know in this country the 6R4 has got such a following um, you know, I it, think of that as a bit of a heroic British failure though really <laughs> Uh, yes. Really, it's a fantastic sounding thing, ridiculous looking device. Yeah. Uh, and obviously went on and had a very good career. Some of these cars actually on this list had, went on to have good careers in, in rallycross, of course, and, and the 6R4 was certainly one of those. But yeah. I think up against up against this kind of opposition, it's, uh, it would very be, it would be a colloquial decision, I think, uh, <laughs> rather than a holistic one. But uh, definitely worth getting a, getting a mention in there. So I guess we need to start uh, knocking some of these cars out. Or do you just have one that you want to pitch as being that's my choice, or, or perhaps a two that we can that we can argue about? Um, I, I, how, how are you feeling, Mr. Editor? What, what's what's uh, what, what, what's your leaning at this moment in time? It's only fair you put me on the spot on the basis that uh, that I've been putting that putting, doing that to you all the way through this. <laughs> um, the, my favourite car, mm. if I had to, if I had to own one, in fact, I think you've got a model of one behind you, is is the is Nancy Delta Integrale. Okay. Uh, I, 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 that that I just the combination, the success, and and the coolness, I really like. But I don't think it's enough of a game changer. Look at that, fantastic red martini livery as well. Oh, indeed. Appeared once, didn't it? It did on the on the San Remo and won oh, it. That's it. Yeah. Um, but the one I'm I'm struggling to see past is the Audi Quattro. On the yep. base with the turbo and the four-wheel drive, I do take your point that um, they made a bit of a dog's dinner of trying to win the championship <laughs> the first couple of years. But I think that was a combination of their own uh, decision making and, frankly, the brilliance of Volta Rawl, who I, I do regard really as one of the people I'd have in that argument um, uh, with uh, with Sebastian Loeb. Um, I don't know <laughs> if you feel about that, but I'm a huge fan of Rawls. A massive, um, massive fan. I think as, as a human being, as much as anything, I think he, he's just an example of what sportsmen should be. Yeah, I think he's superb. Um, so I think without without those factors, the Quattro would have would have won more. What was the strike rate on the Quattro? Did you have that stat? I don't. I didn't note those. I, depth. I do have that stat. Um, it's it was it was strong. Normally, I come into these things with a load of paper and stats. I'm very. It's very nice that somebody else is coming with them this time. Two manufacturers' championships, two drivers' championships, forty percent average in terms of championships, sixty-five rallies, twenty-three wins, thirty-five percent. One in three. Yeah, so that's pretty impressive as well. So, I'm. I, I yeah, I'm struggling to see past the see past the Quattro on the basis of rallying for me was different after that car than it had been before. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm, I, I, that would probably get my vote, but um, you are our rally expert, so I am happy to hear a, a counter argument. Okay, um, my head agrees with you in that it should be the Quattro um, because the strike weight was incredible for the time. Um, the car itself certainly in in long wheelbase form was remarkable uh, became all the remarkable for the wrong reasons in, in short wheelbase form but fundamentally proof of concept four-wheel drive turbocharged is the way forward nothing else has won ever since so yes we will hold on there's one here there we go so the head says this one sensible german but my choice I'm a 70s child. Oh, 
It's got to be sideways. It's got to be that feeling that when you drive to the supermarket, probably to work in a supermarket, your car is the same that Ari Vatanen has just won a rally with. I think that is, it, it, it is what it is. And, and uh, that love of the sport um, has been transmitted to generation after generation by the escort. Um, and it was the product partly of, of my great hero's um, brain power. And um, certainly the way that it was run and marketed had a lot. And here, Peter Ashcroft and, and Stuart Turner got those drivers who did legendary performances in a car, which still for a modern WRC driver remains the car that you need to have in your garage of dreams. It's a, it's a, it's a strong case. And uh, just to add a weight to your argument, um, um, uh, Motorsport News, um, which I, I used to work for in a former life and uh, has, a, has a, a strong rallying fellowship, um, following, um, did a vote on the greatest competition car for its readers. And the readers did pick the Ford Escort, which I always put down to Motorsport News readers being a bit <laughs> off, to be honest. But you've made a good you made a good case for it there. Um, my my reservation on that is it's is it, I think if it had won more championships, yeah, in the seventies, uh, I think because it's it's such an important car in terms of the numbers of people that drove it and the fact that it's still around. The same argument as we made with the Impreza and the Lancer. Um, it, I'm just reluctant to put a car that won seventeen out of eighty seven events and <laughs> not enough championships. Yeah, uh, and also. I'm going to throw in this extra one for the Quattro, Pike's Peak, which uh, is a phenomenal event yeah. in those days when, of course, it hadn't been paved yet. Yeah. Uh, and Vatnan won one, one wheel, one, one hand <laughs> on the wheel, the other one protecting his eyes, driving 600 brake horsepower, whatever it was up there, probably more actually at the bottom. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's just, he's just the epitome of rally cool, really. So, Did you see the, the Ari's... Um covid message to to the public i did not what did he say <laughs> he's got his road car on on his drive and the sun was coming in through the windscreen so he put his crash helmet on did that drove about five feet forward and stopped <laughs> and went stay at home <laughs> it was just perfect harry excellent well i mean he, he's someone we could spend many podcasts talking oh, about yes. too of course okay um, so but- your heart said that one my heart said that one, and it sounds like we're agreeing that actually heads win. I think, yes, I think so. Is that, is, can you, can you, are you going to storm off and, and never appear on a podcast again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can deal with that. It's, if, 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 yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we, should we pick up one of your books then? <laughs> well, do you know, it just so happens. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Audi Quattro rally car. Exactly. Yes. Manual. <clears throat> so there we go. It would have been unfair not to mention that. I think. Um, Slightly but you biased. Well, you'd written the book about, so I think that's very admirable. Um, <laughs> well, we're going to. I think we're going to uh, not reluctantly because I think we've got a fantastic array of cars. He's one of the hardest debates I think we've done so far. I really um, looking at the list, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm loving the Stratos, for example, but just. Yep. Just can't put it in. So get this little one out. He's uh, he's got his collection of models. He's bringing. It's a great collection of models. I'm going to do this with the. Yeah. Yeah. Other guests haven't done this. You see. I think I think punditry does deserve you know at least one forty third scale. 
Uh, yes, on the one forty third scale. The, the other ones are too big. Who, who's got the space for the one eighteenth? Anyway, we're going we're going off piste here. <laughs> so, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to conclude by saying that um, let's say that the, the 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 most fever rally cars that we like are the Escort and the Integrale, but the All Sport seventy greatest rally car of all time is the Audi Quattro. So let us know what you think on social media. I'm sure there'll be lots of Colin McRae fans in particular who just be shouting in practice, in practice, in practice. We're not going to be allowed out of the house for about six months. With them uh, and probably some Lancia fans as well, because Lancia hasn't won this contest, even though you really do associate Lancia with, with rallying, certainly for many, many years. Um, so yeah, let us know on social media or you could even email us autosport at autosport.com. Um, please don't be too aggressive. It was all a bit of fun. <laughs> Um, and I, but I'd like to finish by yeah, thanking the listener, thanking you, the listener, for tuning in. Um, I hope you've had as much fun as we have. And thank you to, to Nick Garton, whose um, knowledge and enthusiasm uh, I thought uh, shone through during that, and I particularly enjoying the model. So um, thank you very <laughs> much, Nick. Take care. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.